This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen. uh... Can I please have your attention? Greetings, your listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. If I sound a little frazzled, it's only because um, I'm frazzled. Uh, I uh, we had some technological difficulties. I had to spend large sums of filthy lucre on getting cars that aren't worth keeping fixed this morning, and um, we're getting a late start. So. It's all okay because I'm extremely excited about today's guest who might on a strict accounting from Coopers and Librand outscore me on nerd points. Um, uh, and uh, I will let the judges decide that. We don't want to, you know, want to work the refs, but he, his name is Brett Devereaux, first time guest. He's an ancient and military historian who currently teaches at the visiting lecture in the Department of History at UNC Chapel Hill. And he has a PhD in ancient history. He has a fantastically weird blog, which is kind of how he runs up the nerd points called a collection of unmitigated pedantry, which is a look at history and popular culture. You can see how it's starting to come into focus why this guy is in uh, my wheelhouse. Um, Brett Devereaux, welcome to The Remnant. Great to be here. Um, slight correction, because I, I would be remiss if I didn't. I'm now a teaching assistant professor at NC State. Oh, I apologize. I was reading from your blog, so I... And um, I have probably not updated that page. <laughs> a small cautionary tale in how historical sources can mislead you. Yeah, I know, right? I mean, I'm still I'm still affiliated with UNC as, as, as well. I have a research appointment there, so it's it's whatever. As long as it's not Duke and it's a university somewhere in the triangle, chances are I'm involved. Fair enough. We're not going to talk about gaming very much, if at all, in any of this, but we should know that you actually know a great deal about those sorts of things as well. And um, you and David French can speak in, <laughs> speak in Elvish and talk about World of Warcraft all you like. And indeed, and indeed have done. Um, I know. I, 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 I did put an appearance on, on AO. I am. Um, I, you know, it's so funny. I, I follow you on Twitter and then you had this Twitter thread that I really liked, which we'll talk about in a second. Then I mentioned it on the remnant and then you sent me a DM saying, thanks for the shout out. And then I was like trying to remember how I started following you in the first place. And I realized it was because I heard you on AO and I started connect all the dots. And then I realized I heard you on econ talk, which is, yeah. you know, like the, the er podcast for me. And so I'm actually going to start there because I, while I was sitting there waiting 
to spend large amounts of money on automotive transportation that I shouldn't have to. I um, re-listened at quick speed to the Econ Talk podcast. And I want to be clear, it is outrageous for me to ask you to account for something that you said in a podcast over a year and a half ago. If you asked me about something I said on a podcast last week, I would have no idea what you're talking about. So you are allowed to revise and extend your remarks. But you made a really interesting point where Russ was asking you about why do we think the Spartans are such badasses? Like, where did this thing come from? And part of your answer was, if I have this right, that the first people who really start writing about the Spartans are, um, are Greeks who are living, Greek elites who live under democracy. And they don't like democracy. They're pissed off about it. And so they're casting about looking for models from the past that show a better way. And you even compared it to modern day technocrats who look at, uh, who look at technocratic authoritarian regimes and say, see, that's better, which is a subject I've written a lot about. And so I'm just kind of curious if you could expand on that, because I thought that was a really interesting point about how you can't always trust historical sources to be pure, objective conveyors of, of, of the narrative and that they also have agendas much like people today do. Yeah. And the, the fellow I have in mind for that, that comment in particular is Xenophon. Um, and he's a contemporary of the Spartan system. Uh, Xenophon, it was an Athenian. Um, he was a student of Socrates. Gives you a sense of his his milieu. Um, he eventually sort of makes a name for himself as a professional military man, and then becomes a becomes a writer um, and writes all sorts of things. He writes histories. He writes uh, a constitution, a sort of description of the Spartan political system. He's technically the father of economics. Uh, writes some philosophy, some Socratic dialogues. Uh, very talented fellow, but yeah, um, Xenophon is is pretty unabashedly a bit more of an oligarch than um, is comfortable in Athens. He ends up spending his retirement living as the guest of one of the Spartan kings. Um, Sparta has two hereditary kings as part of its government. Spartan Sparta's weird um, in terms of its government and. And this is a sort of a kind of through line in, in Xenophon that he isn't particularly fond of the Athenian democracy. Um, and so when you, when you read his constitution of the Spartans, he's describing their system and why it's so much better. Uh, part of what he's doing is, is poking at the Athenian system and saying, you know, these guys really have it better. Um, keeping in mind, right, that Sparta was a state the way to understand Sparta is what if the richest 5% in a country reduced the poorest 75% to slavery mm-hmm. and you get Sparta. Um, that's, I mean, we talk about the Spartan citizens, but like the Spartan citizen body was entirely a leisured elite of landholders that had stripped everybody else of their citizenship and, and monopolized the state. And so Obviously, some Greek elites look at this and they're like, this is fantastic. Um, likewise, the um, later biographer Plutarch is our, another major source. Um, he is a Romanized Greek writing in the second century uh, AD, so much, much later after the Spartan system. And again, and you, Plutarch, the very project, right? Plutarch doesn't write history. He writes the biographies of great men in these parallel lives, and that's what he's interested in. Um, and Plutarch is also one of those fellows who never lets the facts get in the way of a good story. 
And so, yeah, so some of the burnishing of Sparta's image comes from figures, I think we also probably should add Aristotle to this list, who are uncomfortable with Greek democracy and, and after all, our, our elites. I don't know if we're going to get to talk about Polybius's political theory today, but I think this also impacts his thinking. And it's, it's worth remembering that no poor people write to us from the ancient world. So all of our political commentary is a question about what rich people think the, these political systems should be. Students are often quite shocked. For instance, Cicero is very blunt about the thing that's great about the Roman system is that we devalue the votes of poor people systematically. Um, and Cicero stops and just straight up says that uh, when discussing uh, the, the Committee of Centuriata, one of the Roman voting assemblies. And he's like, and this is fantastic because poor people are dumb and bad. Um, you know, a, ancient, ancient writers are really willing to be extraordinarily snobbish. And that's something you need to be careful about, especially because I think y- you often get modern writers who want to idealize these societies who then cherry pick these comments. And Sparta in particular has been a target of that kind of, of cherry picking, uh, consistent enough that there is a, a nice compact French phrase, um, uh, la mirage spartiette, to describe it, the Spartan mirage. Um, which, you know, you know it's been going on for a while when there is a foreign language frame, phrase for it. And it's French and not German, so it's got to be pretty common. And so, yeah, this is something that sort of influences the memory of Sparta. I am very amply on on record to say, I don't think Sparta is a particularly good society and that people should particularly mm-hmm. like it. And um, that upsets some people on the internet, it turns out. Let's, let's widen the camera out. I'm, I'm sorry to jump off. With, I mean, I, I like the answer, but I, I probably should have <laughs> done some more level setting. Um, you say that Sparta was not a particularly good society. I'm with you. I think you could that your list of reasons is probably longer than my list of reasons. Um, but um, I think directionally, my list of reasons is correct for the same reasons that yours would be. And I, I, I don't mean this as a fay or cute question. Um, when you say Sparta wasn't a good society, were there any prior to, I don't know, let's pick a date, 1700. I mean, like good in the, if you described it in the abstract to a person, Right. About how a normal person lived, about how a normal person was punished, about how how the state exercised power, um, given our preferences today. Is there any society of the ancient world that you think actually compared to the yardstick of today could pass muster as a good society that we know of? So there is certainly a reason if you ask a random sampling of Americans, if you could live any time in the past, when would you? You will get a wide range of answers. And if you ask a room full of historians, almost everyone will answer, how close to the present can I go? Mm -hmm. Followed by last Wednesday. Yeah, (laughs) no, right. Like last week, Um, maybe, maybe the 1990s. Yeah. But there's a reason for that. Yeah. I mean, so. I think when you're thinking about historical societies and the way that they're different from today, it, it is somewhat important to divide the sort of the purely technological um, from the social and organizational. And we can talk about both of those. Uh, that said, even the social and organizational for past societies is rough. Uh, very corporal, often quite brutal punishments were very normal, in part because most pre-modern societies don't have the capacity to incarcerate people. and so. If you can't do that, then you 
crucify them, you flog them, you throw them off of rocks. I, that said, I mean, you really get a sense of, of human cruelty as an innate part of human nature when you know, some of the, the almost morbidly exotic punishments tied up in a sack with an assortment of animals and thrown into a river kind of nonsense, a thing the Romans did. There was a Persian one, I think, where you stood in a room with, a, with incredibly fine ash and you were just left there. And over time, your lungs would fill up with the ash. It was like that one I haven't heard, but yeah. it checks out. I know this is shock you, but on the Internet, there are lots of websites that list different forms of obscure torture. Um, and when I was working on my book, you know, I, I used as my sort of touchstone the, the Pinker book about, you know, violence. And then pulled on a lot of those threads. And just, there were a lot of mean things going on back in the day. And straight up war. War was a lot more common in, in, in the past. I think this, this baffles people because they say, well, but look at all these wars happening now. And that's just, that's communications technology. That's just, there are fewer wars today, but you hear about all of them. But the actual, like the likelihood of you being killed in war in conflict um, has declined massively and declined fairly consistently um, over time. Uh, you know, uh, Steven Pinker's book remains really controversial because of the reasons he suggests for the decline. I will admit I am somewhat more, um, my preference is more um, Azar Gatz, uh War in Human Civilization, which tackles the question, I think, from a slightly different angle. Can you explain that just for the sake of listeners? I mean, I know Pinker's argument pretty well, but I don't know Argot's at all so to, to give both really quickly right pinker's argument is 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 fundamentally cultural that this is a product of changing cultural mores around around violence he's particularly focused on the enlightenment but he does gesture at like this is a long-running thing a, a trend before the enlightenment and that we sort of learn to be civilized Gott approaches it um more as a question of interests and arguing that changes in the way human beings do production changes the the interest calculation for doing war. So you start with your hunter-gatherers. The resources that hunter-gatherers are after is still land in a general sense because the things you hunt and gather occupy physical space. The more space you control, the more of those resources you can pull in. Um, but these societies don't have much ability to incorporate conquered peoples. Um, and in any event, uh, the carrying capacity of the land in this kind of system is very low. So most hunter-gatherer warfare is genocidal. Um, you simply start killing your neighbors until they move away from you, and then you move into that resource zone. I mean, you might take their women and children as Maybe. slaves or concubine or whatever, but like the men go, right? The men go. And you don't even always do that. Um, we have some pretty eye-popping Neolithic massacre sites where it's clear women and children were not spared. Uh, where unique conditions of preservation means that we find, you know, a pit with 90 bodies in it, um, you know, with their hands tied behind their backs. And you're like, geez, my field is fun. <laughs> Gott actually tries to sort of estimate what military mortality was like in pre-farming societies, sort of hunter-gatherer societies. And he comes to something like um, one in four or one in five. Uh, male and female. So males are actually going to be higher than that around a third and females somewhat lower than that. Um, in, in these societies, which is just spectacular. I mean, it, it's hard to even contextualize that level. The The only modern comparison that I can think of is Poland in World War II all the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I think something like 15 to 20% of all Poles died during World War II. Um, it was the percentage-based, the worst hit country. 
in the war, you know, these very early societies are like that all the time. When you get to farming, uh, farming societies, agrarian societies, they develop stratification, systems of control. These systems are often really unpleasant, but it does mean that you can incorporate conquered peoples rather than just killing them all. And that may mean slavery. Um, it often does. It may mean some kinds of serfdom or other non-free arrangements or so on. But it, it does seem to mean that, that military mortality drifts down in this, in this new system. It's really hard to estimate. Um, you know, my research primarily on, on the Romans. And Nathan Rosenstein did some estimating work for, for the Romans, um, which suggested among the Roman citizen body for the period from about 250 to about 160, BC that the military mortality rate among males might have been something like a third, but those are citizen males. And you kind of adjust that you end up with something like 10%. So you've gone from a, a one in four chance of being murdered violently to a one in 10 chance. And then Gott's argument is that the next big disjuncture is the industrial revolution, um, that the industrial revolution raises the destructiveness of war, but it also changes the interest calculation when all of your wealth is in agriculture, the best way to get more wealth is to seize more land. But once your wealth is in factories, you could, instead of investing in armies, you could invest in more factories. And it becomes suddenly relatively cheaper to trade for those resources by building more factories, selling their produce, and buying whatever it is that guy has over there than it is to raise an army and go get it. And so God argues this is the second big disjuncture. And it's unclear where the sort of tip over point in the industrial revolution comes where it's um, suddenly uh, less returns to capital investment outpace returns to war would be the fancy way of saying it. Evidently before 1914, there's nothing you could possibly win in World War I would have been worth World War I. And then Gott's, the sort of back end of Gott's argument is, is like, but the bad news is that human evolution was almost certainly shaped by the pressures of war in that hunter-gatherer stage, which remember, we were hunter-gatherers for much, 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 much longer than we were farmers. It's long enough to be evolutionarily significant. So we're probably evolved for war. In any event, all of our social structures are built for it. We invented the state to do war more efficiently. I, I, I remember um, when, when COVID was getting started, I think it was Ezra Klein mused. He's like, I can't understand why our states are so good at fighting wars and so bad at fighting viruses. And I'm like, well, we've only been able to fight viruses for about a century. Our states have been fighting wars for 5,000 years. We designed them for that. They're very good at it. God's point is that, of course, now we have acquired the means to destroy ourselves and his sort of kind of grim closing note is that the question is, will we unlearn our habit to war now that it's counterproductive before we, you know, nuke ourselves off the face of the planet. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So 
So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. It's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. I'm familiar with that argument directionally. It's very, it's it's not wholly dissimilar to Pinker's argument, right? They, these are connected. Um, you know, I think Pinker's cultural claims. A lot of historians throw up red flags. That's what we do. Um, historians exist to look at what social scientists are saying. You go, whoa, wait a minute, uh, hold on. <laughs> this is this is the interaction. But all right, so let me. Do, let me I really do want to get to Rome because I have some really pointed questions about Rome. Let me just bounce an idea off you and you tell me it seems to be the explanation can easily be both and not either or right and you know you mentioned earlier about how cicero says poor people suck right or words to that effect i don't think poor people suck but i think if you're cicero in an age where the difference between how poor people live and how aristocrats live empirically you could see why you would think Almost that poor people were a different species, right? I mean, they're totally illiterate. They live muddy, diseased, short lives with under crappy conditions. I think that one of the arguments for why war ceases is this, we can call it liberal, but it predates liberalism, right? But this, this, this we can call it Christian, which is better. This idea that the least among us is a creature of, of, uh, with a divine spark, with dignity. And so the sort of, it's okay to go to war and lose a lot of peasants kind of, or lower castes kind of thing is ideologically or spiritually or religiously, however you want it, but theologically, um, overturned over time as the median human being is seen as more worthy than it was necessarily in the ancient times. I also think sort of a Paul Tillich point, but like one of the reasons why people cared so much about their eternal soul and the afterlife in pre-modern Europe is because the current life was so bad and everyone was dying all over the place. And like, you know, the number of 
kids or mothers who were born in childbirth or died in childbirth was just astronomical number of kids who died before the age of five. Death was everywhere. And so this life seemed kind of more expendable. And you really cared about the ever, you know, the eternal life later, which is another one of the reasons why some people would argue we're wired for war. All I'm saying is that I understand, I really like the sort of public choice theory and explanations for why history unfolds the way it does. And there were the cost benefit and analysis change with the changing technology. And I'm not dismissing that. All I'm saying is that it seems to me that theological and spiritual and philosophical understandings of the nature of human existence, maybe they're lagging indicators of those other things um, in some cases. But it seems to me that probably plays a big part of it too. So make of that what you will. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that, you know, you, you, you will never get a historian who is grumpy for messy, multi-causal uh, conditions. Uh, you know, I mean, yeah. Marxist humans, historians would disagree with you. That's true. That's true. <laughs> they, they, there, aren't, there aren't that many of them left, to be yeah, frank. Yeah. But that, is, that is true. Yeah, I think there's, so, I mean, I think there's something to this. I think that, you know, it's, it's important not to e- exaggerate the sort of the level of impact, but I don't think it's an accident, for instance, you know, in the sort of broader kind of Mediterranean world, your your two your first two major universalizing religions, um, Christianity and, and Islam, both have periods of trying to pull the brakes on violence in a way that like Roman paganism is just not interested in. You have you know the peace of God, intrusive of God movements in in medieval Europe, and then you also have right. I mean, Islam has rules about war and and rules, at least notionally, protecting certain kinds of non-combatants, which is, that's just new. The Romans don't understand there to be non-combatants. Um, Rome does not declare war on a country. It declares war on a people. The Romans don't go to war with Carthage. They go to war with the Carthaginians. And so there are no non-military targets. And that is how the Romans think about it. You know, I mean, this is a, this is a shift, of course. Middle Ages are a really violent period. Um, and so, you know, these sort of efforts, you know, the peace of God and truce of God movements are notable for failing, um, right? Their efforts to restrain violence in a European system that, that largely don't succeed, but they are efforts. And it's, it's interesting to see the efforts as opposed to, you know, in, in an antiquity, I don't want to get out too far over my skis. I would say that, that the sort of ancient pagan attitude towards war is, shockingly ambivalent. There's definitely a sense that like war is bad and people die, but also war is where boys become men and the purpose of the state and death in war is the highest possible glory um, that creates a sort of war is bad, but also good kind of, kind of exchange. And so, yeah, there's, there's uh, a change in, you have changing cultural values. Um, you have changing social structures. You talk about sort of the, the importance of the the common man and you know perhaps one of the the most well observed facts in uh, modern political science is that at least in the modern world democracies tend not to go to war with each other uh, which again when you say that people are like really and I'm like this has actually been extraordinarily well established as someone who is extremely skeptical of international relations political science theories I'm like mm, no they've got they've got them they've got this one um, I mean, you know, I guess it could change tomorrow if we invade Canada, but fingers crossed, right? But the very <laughs> preposterousness of that notion, um, is is what tells you that. And so, yeah, that this is um, the, these are moving together, and it's not wholly clear what's causing what, um, and and what's what's pushing um, what. But yeah, I mean, the sort of um, elite disdain 
for the commons is 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 a pretty clear factor in in pre-modern society and is enabled by just really extreme levels of of distance um you know medieval aristocrats did not like their peasants um they write poems about how much they dislike their peasants uh read the poetry for instance of uh Akhetan Troubadour, Bertrand de Born, who also writes poems, by the way, about how much he loves war and how it's awesome. I've read a bit of Roman history stuff. I last thing I read was the Adrian Goldworthy biography of Caesar. Um, read some Barry Strauss. Uh, read his book on Spartacus and one other. Um, and I go back. I, I really have a rough time. Plus, I've seen a lot of movies and television. <laughs> right. And um, and I know you write, you've written about this. We talked about it on the on the Econ Talk podcast, the deception, the, the deceptiveness of having white Oxford graduates play all the Romans. Yes. Is frustrating. Right. And um, and I'm sort of I, I'm with you. I just I, I have contradictory views. Right. And I want I'm you're here to reconcile some of these. for me. That's one okay. of your purposes today. All right. So on the one hand, on the Econ Talk podcast. You say several times, more than I remembered, how Romans are basically, they just want money. They're cynical. They go to war to take stuff. They really don't care about local laws and customs except for human sacrifice, which they say you can't do without permission, right? Or you can't do, it, can't do human sacrifice at all. You can't execute people without permission, Correct. right? But other than that, you know, let your free flag fly. You got your own syncretic, whatever religious stuff, go for it. That's fine. Um, all it is, is a mercenary financial transaction. I like thinking about the Romans that way. Cause I, I actually think there's remarkable. I think some of it is deliberate polarities between the sort of the way the mafia operates and the way the Romans operated. Right. You know, this sort of like yeah. selling protection, right. Mm-hmm. And, and as, as long as you're under our protection, no one else can screw with you. You give us our cut, you know, everything's good. I don't care if you're a freak or you gamble a lot, do what you want to do. Right. So I get, I kind of like that conception of the Romans, but when you go and you read Roman, you know, Cicero and all of these kinds of things, and I know it's been idealized in Hollywood, there's a lot of, for the greater glory of Rome, there's a lot mm-hmm. of like high concept stuff going on. Is this just Roman hypocrisy or is their self-conception different than the way you sort of describe their actually op- their actual operations? I mean, I think the disconnect, of course, is the high concepts. Uh-huh. Um, that the the greater the greater glory of Rome, right, is the act of of conquest. It is the expansion of the empire. It is the adding of new peoples to Rome's possessions, right? There, it's not you know human rights in the Geneva Convention, and so so the Romans have this word. It's a very important word for them. Virtus. It literally means manliness. A weir in Latin is just a man. Um, it's where we get our word virtue. And it is certainly like it is the best thing that a man can have. Um, but Weirtus is not like humility and charity and chastity. Weirtus is a combination of ambition combined with drive, combined with a reckless sort of bravery. Weirtus are the set of values that make you good at war and conquest. And in, so in the Roman mind, like what a, what a man should be doing in society is proving his energy, his virtus. And one of the ways you do that is you go out and conquer people. You assert some degree of dominance. And so the Roman state is out there doing this. And the Romans don't particularly see anything wrong with wars of conquest. 
Though, to be fair, they do try to claim that all their wars of conquest are defensive. So we didn't want to conquer you, but, you know, we had to for reasons. Um, reasons which are often, at best, notional. And so the value system is different. And so for the, for, for the Romans, you know, the guy that, that goes out in his war and, and mashes up those people over there and expands the Romans, say he has contributed to the greater glory of Rome and the sort of high concept um, success. And that's, that's fine because the Romans do not, do not perceive the disconnect that we do because for the Romans, conquest is good, actually. I always, I think it's striking. Alexander III of Macedon, who listeners almost certainly know as Alexander the Great, um, is not called the Great in Greek. He's called Alexander Magnus in Latin. Um, it is the Romans that look at Alexander and say, that was the greatest man that ever lived. To be fair, Greek sources are very pro-Alexander too. But think about the value judgment being made there. What did Alexander accomplish? Did he reorganize his new empire? No. Did he change it culturally? No. Did he invent anything of significance? No. Did he write anything of significance? No. All Alexander did in his life was conquest and killing. That was it. Um, which I, people are often, I find somewhat puzzled to hear that ancient historians have sort of, since the 1950s and Ernst Badian, have sort of revised a somewhat negative view of Alexander. They're like, well, yeah, because we don't think conquering people is cool anymore. Like, decolonization was inevitably going to lead to a reassessment of Alexander. The moment you're like, yeah, no, subjugating foreign people is bad. Well, that's all Alexander did. <laughs> um, but the Romans looked at that and they're like, that guy is fantastic. Everyone should want to be like that. So, I mean, again, I understand there are problems with this analogy between the mafia and the Romans. There are also benefits to it, which is- I was, It's actually a pretty good analogy. Which I, is why I'm going to stick with it for a little while longer. Yeah. Um, so here, here's what I'm trying to get at is like, all of the stuff that, including many of my very good friends, who I would like to keep good friends because I've lost so many over the last eight years, who are more sort of political philosophy nerds, Straussians, these kinds of things, right? When they read into, when, and not just they, also there are people on the left who do this. I mean, this is a very modern thing to do. When we read into Cicero and Cato the Elder and 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 all of these things, and we watch the BBC this and the HBO that, and we hear the stuff about virtue and you know and all that kind of thing. Should we hear that kind of stuff and think more about sort of typical mafiosos or say Colombian gangsters, right? Who talk about like when we. we uh, Instead of great, should we hear good earner in the mob, mob sense? Hey, he's a good earner. He goes out. He gets it, right? Like, you know, um, should virtue be the, the virtuous, you know, whatever that word is that the Romans use it, virtu. Virtus, yeah. Should that be more like the set of balls on him, right? I mean, like yeah. that kind of thing. I mean, is it, are we imposing this very Latinate, high-minded, philosophical patina on what was a much earthier understanding of a lot of these concepts. That's what I'm trying to understand. Or yeah. did they actually have a high minded view of these concepts and you're peeling back and saying, yeah, but at the end of the day, it was, it was a much more cynical kind of thing. And this is just basically PR. A little bit of both. Uh, I would say a little bit of both. I mean, one thing I, I will say is that the Romans take, you, know, you talk about it as, as a mafia protection racket. I think that's a fair way to view it. Um, I think, 
the Romans take that promise of protection a lot more literally and seriously than perhaps organized crime does. That I mean, like when the Romans say that they'll protect your store, they mean it. Mm-hmm. And this is the sort of the other kind of big concept in in the Roman thinking about their foreign policies. What they call fides. Uh, we get our word fidelity from this. This is trust or faith. When you're defeated by the Romans and you surrender, um, the term for this is deditio in fidem. You're placed in the fides of the Roman people. And to the Romans, this is a very serious obligation. The Romans market themselves and their foreign policy as the people of Fides. We're the ones that keep bargains, unlike those Greeks who can't be trusted. The Romans do not have a great opinion of Greek trustworthiness, just generally. This is actually one of the things that I've argued in my, in my scholarship is that the Romans are, Fides is not cynical. Um, you know, if the Romans say that they are going to protect you, I, they, they will throw away field armies full of Romans to protect you. It's really striking, for instance, when Hannibal invades Italy, he does not target Rome's core territory in Italy. Um, the Agor Romanus, the territory that had Roman citizens in Italy, was only about a third of peninsular Italy. The other two thirds were Rome's allies, and, and people can't see, but I'm making air quotes around allies. Um, these were subject Italian communities that had to follow Rome's lead, but they weren't Roman citizens. Hannibal exclusively targets the allies because his goal is to get them to defect. And so he's burning Etruscan villages and Samnite villages and, you know, so on and so forth. He's not burning Roman towns. And the Romans respond by they throw an army at him in 218 and he crushes it. And they immediately raise another one and he crushes it in 217. And he rolls into Etruria and starts burning the place. And despite the fact that the Romans have a really sensible leader at this point who's like, we should just bottle Hannibal up and stop losing armies to him. The Romans are so appalled that he's out there burning Etruscan, not Roman, Etruscan fields that they raise the biggest army ever and throw it at him. And of course, it's Hannibal. So he destroys that one too. And then the Romans are finally like, oh yeah, I guess maybe we should bottle this guy up. On the one hand, you know, the Romans are, I think, you know, acquisitive, like you're sort of mafiosi. But on the other hand, they take the guarantees that they offer you in defeat very seriously. And a lot of that has to do, I think, with the way that structures of patronage and protection work in Roman society, too. There's very open patronage networks in Rome. And so your personal honor was tied up in how good of a patron or a client you were because this wasn't a hidden under the table thing, but a very quite public thing, though politely obscured. You called your patrons and clients friends. Um, You don't want to humiliate them in public. And that that leads into the into the empire that the Romans feel they have an obligation to defend these areas of their empire. They eventually, you know, feel like they have an obligation to, you know, a local city that pays taxes is, you know, wants to do some public works and needs some engineers. This shows up in the letters of Pliny, for instance. Um, they want to build an aqueduct and they want to borrow the army's engineers. And like the Romans are like, yeah, I guess we should do that. Um, that's part of the obligation that comes with the protection money they pay us is that, you know, they get to have a Roman army engineer who were the best um, to design their aqueduct. In the long run, right, this leads to the really remarkable and as far as we can tell, wholly accidental fact that the people Rome conquers come to identify as Romans. That doesn't erase their previous identities, like identities layer, they don't replace you know, as Americans should immediately know, right? Because everybody is there to tell you that, you know, well, you know, what country their ancestors are from, right? Identities layer. 
um, go out on St. Patrick's Day, Identity Slayer. And, you know, when the Roman Empire is in crisis in the third century, the fourth century, the fifth century, as it's beginning to come apart, right? It is being desperately defended by the people the descendants of the people who were brutally conquered into it in the first place, um, which is which is really remarkable um, and kind of unusual when things go wrong for the Romans, you know, the, the, the people they've incorporated don't bolt for the door. They fight to keep this Roman thing going because they've come to believe that they are Romans and it's theirs. Um, and that's a really unusual thing to see in, in empire building and has a lot to do with the way that the Romans see themselves as once they've killed half of you and enslaved a quarter of you and been absolutely brutal because the Romans are just being conquered by the Romans, a deeply unpleasant experience. I want to stress this, but after that moment of extreme violence, the Romans feel that they have obligations to you just as you have obligations to them. And then as long as the obligations are followed, everybody is happy and your obligation is money, (laughs) Uh, possibly troops, but definitely money. Um, and then they have obligations of sort of protection um, to you that are, are wide ranging. They take those obligations seriously. I mean, I, I'm not disputing that the Romans take it more seriously than the mob, but there are analogs, you know, about, you know, it's a matter of respect. It's a matter of honor, right? I mean, that's one of these things. I mean, honor is one of these, is a concept. I, I don't know if it's, it's on the, the list of uh, human universals, but it's, if it's not, it's pretty close, right? I mean, honor comes up a lot in part because it's a, it's a scalable evolutionary survival strategy. It brings out, it, it draws out sacrifice from individuals and it causes people to cooperate in ways that, you know, lack of honor, you know, other concepts don't. So like you could see why at scale, the Roman empire succeeds by taking this, these kind of concepts super seriously. Because Also, I'd be remiss if I didn't note honor, also a Latin word. Fair, fair. And I will note the Romans, like Americans, spell it correctly without any U's. <laughs> you know, I want to get back to the empires and stuff in a second, but um, it's it's something I keep mentioning, like the Russian and the Pine Barrens and the Sopranos, and never following up on. And I, um, I'm sorry, I got Sopranos on the brain now. So one of the things that really kind of I did not realize until I read the the Caesar biography, and I've brought it up a few times on here, is that um, senators, prominent Romans, were, were charging other colonial... And when colonial governors came back, they were almost always charged with corruption, and they were put on trial. And it was a big deal to be a Roman senator who was a prosecutor who put someone on trial. And again, I could go nuts with mob analogies here, but we don't need to do that. And my friend Andy Smerick and a couple other people I've been talking to there are a bunch of people right now on the right, smart, good people who are working on what it means to be Republican as opposed to Democrat. And I don't mean in terms of the parties. I mean, like, what is a republic versus a democracy? We all seem to have this intuitive understanding of what a democracy is. We talk about how great democracy is. We don't really talk about what a republic is very much. And anyway, one of the arguments that I've been playing with is that if you're going to have a republic, and if you think a republic is something different than a democracy, then holding leaders accountable is super really incredibly important. If you believe that the leaders have a different set of rules that apply to them and you, whether it's like holding classified information in your beach resort, in your beach resorts bathroom, in your beach resorts bathroom, right? It's, um, it's wildly corrosive to the virtues of a Republic and a democracy. If you believe that you're a sucker for 
playing by the rules when the people who benefit the most from the system aren't right. And, and so I'm just wondering, can you put that, first of all, the, 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 the trial stuff in context for me, because I, I keep look, and if you know something I can read about the role of trials in, in, in ancient Rome, I would love to read it. What was the purpose of them? It was it just really this sort of like these guys got too greedy and they took too much stuff and we want a bigger share of a cut. Or was there a more high-minded thing to it, and it would did it play an important role in Republican um, political system? And what is your view of what a republic actually means? The weird quirk of Roman law, which which will be familiar to anybody who has been listening to the the DOJ talk about prosecuting presidents, um, is that certain Roman magistrates could not be prosecuted while in office. Um, the 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 quirk here is is if your job involves holding what the Romans called imperium. Um, which is the the authorization to both command armies and organize law courts because these were combined concepts in the Roman world, you are immune to prosecution because you have authority over the courts, uh, right? It's the, it's the same president can't be prosecuted by the DOJ problem. And so um, it became, and, and the two top Roman magistrates, the consuls have imperium, the magistrates immediately below them, the praetors have imperium, and then all the provincial governors have imperium um, because they have to command armies. And so it becomes common um, that if you think someone has done something shady in office, you wait until they leave office and then you hammer them with prosecutions. And because, right, there's a lot of competition in, in the Roman... Um, political order, right, you're going to have rivals who are going to want to see if they can get something to stick. That then, by the time we're getting through the second century, Caesar's in the first century, through second century BC, um, that then runs alongside that Roman concept of fides, um, in that the Romans are acquiring these overseas provinces. Um, there aren't a lot of Roman citizens in these overseas provinces. They're sending a, a governor over there, usually a pro-magistrate. That's complicated. And we don't need to deal with it here. Um, but they're sending a guy over there with Imperium whose job is to defend the province, fight anybody who needs fighting over there, and make sure that the taxes get collected. He doesn't do the tax collection himself. The Roman state isn't that sophisticated. They actually sell the right to collect taxes. It's weird. That goes on well into European history, right? Oh, yeah. I mean- I mean, we still even have, we didn't institute a public option in healthcare. We, we, we tax farmed um, in, in a very real sense, right? We delegated this, this in some countries, ostensibly state, obviously whole separate argument about whether it should be, but this is what we did. Like that was how the ACA was structured. Anyway, um, governor's immune to prosecution when he has Imperium. It's pretty clear that those governors end up on the take a lot. A lot of the tax money finds its way into their pockets. Local communities bribe them for all sorts of exciting reasons. Um, And this bothers the Romans. And so beginning in the 150s, there are efforts at legal reform, the creation first of a temporary and then a permanent court to handle these complaints. We refer to them as the repetundi courts because they're the quaestio de repetundis, literally the court for things you need to give back. (laughs) Um, The Romans have wonderfully literal phrasings. Um, it's really striking, actually. Most empires do not terribly care if you steal from the subject peoples, but that Roman concept of fides, they do. So, so just to be clear about this, because this gets to this tension, this both-and tension, right? Mm-hmm. Are they pissed because it was unfair to their vassal states that they had patronage, they had you know responsibility over, 
or are they pissed because not enough of it went back to the 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 treasure the public fisc you know to the treasury of rome and from the prosecution speeches and discussions we have it's actually the former more than the latter mm-hmm. um at least the arguments that get made to juries um and the big example of this that we have is cicero's prosecution of varies who had been the governor of sicily and the varines um this is a the star making turn in cicero's political career and the only time he stands as prosecutor, Cicero didn't like being a prosecutor. It made him feel icky, but he does this early in his career and just absolutely demolishes this guy. One of the things that uh, you could do in the Roman court system is that any time before the jury delivered its verdict, you could go into voluntary exile in order to avoid whatever the jury was about to do to you. And so Cicero delivers the first half of his speech, and then they essentially have to take a break uh, because of some procedural uh, shenanigans that have delayed the court um, that the other guy is doing. And Barry's just bails. <laughs> he's heard the first half of the speech. He's like, my goose is cooked. I'm out of here. And so Cicero publishes in written form. Like, this is what the second half of the speech looked like. <laughs> and what would have been the punishment? In Barry's case, Cicero was going for a capital charge. Um, that, the, that This was so extreme. That Cicero argued that people had been murdered in the process of all of this corruption, that Barry's had disappeared some folks and had maltreated um, Italians, so by this point, Roman citizens that were also in the province. And so there are some pretty serious charges here. At minimum, if you were convicted, as the repetundi, things you must give back name means, you did have to make restitution to the injured parties. Um, It wasn't a perfect system, in part because the Roman legal system doesn't give non-citizens standing to sue. So if you're a Sicilian and the governor robs you, you have to find a Roman to bring the case. Roman aristocrats may be less than willing to go to bat for you. Right. On the flip side, if you are savvy enough about Roman politics to identify the Roman politician in whose political interest it would be, if this or that person gets hammered, um, you can. But yeah, as a result, there was an expectation that if you're serving as consul or governor or what have you, you did have a pretty strong expectation. And ironically, Cicero writes this when he's, about this when he serves as the governor of Cilicia in 63, or not in 63, in 54. Um, He's consul in 63. But um, he writes about this, that that he's like, I have to keep in line because I have enough political opponents that if I fudge, I'm going to get dragged through the courts. And of course, for Julius Caesar, uh, Julius Caesar did a ton of illegal things as consul. He did even more illegal things in Gaul. He just broke in the law manifestly um, and had adopted a strategy of never leaving office um, so that he was never vulnerable to prosecution. And this produces the January crisis in 49, where the Senate is like, you should leave office. And Caesar is like, I can't. And so he marches on, on Rome which there's a really perverse argument I've seen bouncing around some sectors of, of the Trumpier space that like this means that like prosecuting officials is what creates civil wars. I'm like, no, no. Letting Caesar hold nonstop military commands for 10 years is the problem. Um, he should have been prosecuted at the end of his consulship for the laws he broke. That would have solved the problem. He wasn't because his political ally at the time was Pompey. Obviously, they uh, they don't get along later, but at the moment, they were on the same team. Um, yeah, it was fairly regular. And and I guess I should note, just, just generally, um, other modern democracies prosecute 
former high officials all the time, like South Korea and France and whatever. Like it, it's normal. It's not an unusual. What's unusual is that we've gone through so many presidents and not done so. Though of course we almost did with Nixon. Um, and so you know the United States is somewhat unusual in having not done this. Um, but this is not an unusual thing for democracies to do. When we talk about the distinction between a, a democracy and and a, and a republic, um, you know, I think that the, these are not um, mutually exclusive terms. You know, I sometimes say, well, you know, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. And I'm like, these are not mutually exclusive. Um, the Romans give us the term republic, um, res publica. It means the public thing. Uh, an easy translation into English would be the commonwealth. Um, literally our stuff held in common. Almost Cosa Nostra. But anyway, sorry. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and and for, for the Romans, right, uh, the republic was in many ways, and, and ancient political philosophers love thinking about polities this way, as a balancing of interests within the state. You know, the, the, the Roman shorthand for the Republic, SPQR, Senatus Publius Quae Romae, um, yeah, the Senate and people of Rome, um, which tells you that the Senate is not the people of Rome. It is a distinct body and that the Senate and people of Rome, their interests are balanced in some way um, in, in this environment. And this actually I, neatly gets us to Polybius because Polybius is, is one of the Greeks that is essentially sitting here theorizing about the Roman constitutional order. The Romans aren't much of ones for theory, <laughs> um, but the Greeks are. And one of the arguments that Polybius makes about why the Roman Republic in particular is a great example of what he terms a mixed constitution is that it finally balances the interests and prerogatives of different elements of the state. Um, and, and Polybius's argument is, is like, wherever you look, you would assume um, that that part of the state runs everything because it is very powerful. And so he's like, if you only looked at the consuls, you would say the state is basically a, a monarchy. It's practically a dictatorship. But then if you only looked at the Senate, you would say this is a, a, a strict oligarchy. The Senate is so powerful. And then if you only looked at the voting assemblies, this is the part that people leave off. If you only looked at the voting assemblies, you'd say this was a democracy. Um, and he enumerates the sort of what are the powers and privileges of each. The point is, it's all and none of those things. They are balanced against each other, though I think modern historians have taken a somewhat limited view of, of, of Roman democracy, not because of the structure of the constitution, but because of the mechanics of participation. The Romans have a government that seems to be designed for like a small town of maybe 20,000 people with which they are governing a citizen body of a quarter of a million adult males. Um, so maybe like 1.5 million Romans. And so you get this, like all voting has to be done in person at a single location on a single day. And you're like, how many people could participate in that? And so like, how democratic is it really? At the same time, Roman assemblies occasionally do serve as real checks on um, the, the Senate's power. Um, at the, for instance, after the second Punic War, Rome's second war with Carthage is over, the Senate for strategic reasons is like, we should go to war with the Macedonians. Um, under the Antigonids. Um, part of this is score settling. The Macedonians had sided with Hannibal during the Second Punic War. And part of it is geopolitics, that the Antigonids in Macedon and the Seleucids in Syria 
were in a position to dominate the Eastern Mediterranean because the third major power out there, Ptolemaic Egypt, had a boy on the throne um, and was basically out. Um, and so the Romans were like, we need to intervene for strategic reasons. Um, but they just finished this enormous war. The Second Punic War was uh, real hard. And so the Senate is like, we should do this war. And the consuls agree. The magistrates follow the, the advice of the Senate, but the Senate can't declare war. Uh, wars, war and peace has to be declared by the, the popular assemblies. And so the consuls go and they put the declaration of war to the vote. And the people are like, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, and which is remarkable as a side note, the Romans are quite pro-war. Um, to get a Roman voting body to be like, we think this war is a bad idea. You have to work pretty hard. The Roman Republic lasts for about 500 years. It is at peace for eight of them. <laughs> um, like that's the actual number. Uh, that's not a made up exaggeration. It is literally eight. Hmm. Every other year they're at war at least somewhere. You know, so uh, we, we bemoan our forever wars. And for the Romans, that was kind of aspirational in some way. And um but the Romans are like, no, we're exhausted. This war is going to be expensive. It's going to take lots of people. The consuls eventually have to compromise. The agreement that they come to, that they get the assembly to vote on is, we'll go to war with Macedon, but we promise to only recruit men who haven't served very much in the army. We're not going to call the veterans back to the standards. We're only going to recruit young men that are just coming of age. And that's the promise they make. We will win this war with the young men that didn't fight in the last big war. And, uh, and that gets, that gets it through the assembly, but like, it's a meaningful, it, it can serve as a meaningful check. There are points where the Senate, the assembly wants a given candidate elected into office. And the Senate is like, but Scipio Emilianus isn't eligible to run. And the people are like, I don't care. And they vote for him anyway, uh, twice. Scipio Emilianus is consul twice and it's illegal both times, 146 and 133, uh, or 134. Hmm years. Uh, this is the man, as a side note, that destroys Carthage. Different from Scipio Africanus, who defeats Hannibal. Um, but it's, it's, yeah, it's always Scipios fighting wars in North Africa. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And I know, and I'm not trying to force you to give the answer I want because I don't know that I don't know what the answer I want is. But the priests of ancient Rome, right? They were. Mm -hmm. Augers, Haruspices, whatever we're supposed to call them, right? Um, Haruspicase, the sea is hard. Um, is it really? Interesting. So they looked at bird entrails, right? Mm -hmm. And I know from HBO's Rome that some of them were on the take, right? But, <laughs> yes. I, but I, 
I am totally open to the idea that some of them were absolutely sincere mm-hmm. and thinking that, oh, look, the spleen is a yellowish, phlegmy patina mm-hmm. to it. Uh, that means inauspicious time for war, right? Or vice versa. Great time for war. I don't give a rat's ass what the actual, re- you know, the lexicology of, of bird innards is, right? Now, we know with the benefit of modern science that it's all made up garbage, right? But that doesn't mean it's not sincere. No, the Romans believed their religion. Yeah. So, th- but, okay, so this is, this is sort of getting to the point, right? So, like, the, they believed the religion, but they did they believe the, the public philosophy, or was this really just sort of like a Cosa Nostra kind of thing? This, this is our thing. This is how it works. Your honor is important, but like, are we retroactively imposing a grandiosity that, that is perfectly euphoniously accompanied by a, a, a certain kind of British accent? <laughs> and if you, if you could cast it with, and I, I, and I mean this with no aspersions, but like we have, like when we see movies about Pablo Escobar, yeah, there's machismo. There's a mm-hmm. sense of honor. There's a sense of rules, right? And you don't, you know, you don't get greedy and, you know, you have to be loyal and there are all these sorts of concepts. Think about watching like a Scarface or a, a, a Narcos where it's, it's Jerome Jacoby and Lawrence Olivier playing the drug dealers, talking in very highfalutin terms. That would rob us of some of the reality of the way this stuff really worked. And so I guess that's sort of my question is, is like, are we investing way too much intellectualism in what was a much closer to the ground kind of normalcy to a lot of this stuff? I think we, one, Roman politics is messy and personal. Um, One thing I will say is, you know, we can describe in the abstract how the Roman political system worked. Um, when you get into the details, what you get is a lot of Roman politicians bumping up against each other. They're all ambitious. Most of them are quite arrogant because they're drawn from the very small slice of the elite of the society that lives very well. Um, they have been ordering people around all their lives. And so that influences their personalities. And so they they bump up against each other quite harshly because they're all ambitious, arrogant men. And so you get these sort of ugly personal dynamics. At the same time, like, do these guys believe in their shtick? Uh, yeah, uh, most, of the, most of them do. Um, Sulla was a bloodstained murderer um, who resolutely believed in the Republic. Also a superstitious religious sort of man. But like, there's no question that Sulla believed in the Republic and he was going to kill as many people as he thought it would take to save, in quotes, the Republic. Now, I feel the need to point out because there's been some recent pining after Sulla on the authoritarian right that Sulla did not save the Republic. Uh, In fact, killing all of those people further injured the Republic. Um, Sulla does not succeed in his aims. But does he believe in the Republic? Oh, yes. Um... Caesar in some way sticks out like a sore thumb because Caesar seems not to have believed in the Republic. Uh, certainly once he's in power as, as dictator, he's almost immediately doing a lot of things to make it very obvious that he's dictator and he's in charge. He toys with the idea of a Hellenistic style monarchy. 
Uh, and this is what gets him stabbed 23 times in a gathering of his closest friends. Um, it's worth noting, like Caesar's assassins, some of them were his political rivals. Many of them were his political supporters who had been quite close to him and so on. But then you get to Octavian. Um, and I think Octavian clearly believed in something of a republic. Now, the other issue you get into is uh, the republic clearly meant different things to different people. And so did the republic mean that Roman elites were, you know, public spirited, they held public office, they had a chance to do things for the greater glory of Rome and the benefit of the community and then were honored for it, this sort of cycling through political careers. Because when Octavian later Augustus is saying he saved the Republic, like this is what he preserves. <laughs> and so, whereas by contrast, like it's clear that Octavian does not think that popular voting assemblies are particularly important to the Republic. But then you look at other figures in the Republic, you look uh, for the, the Gracchi, for instance, uh, these great reformers in the late second century, um, and certainly some of the words that, that Livy puts um, to, to sources earlier, like clearly believe that part of the Republic is that the, the, the people have a voice. Um, though certainly the Romans think of it as the voice of the people is balanced against the voice of the elites. Um, that the I think the Romans see the oligarchy as a legitimate interest group in a way that I think as moderns we tend not to right. If you suggested that like it sh you shouldn't be allowed to to gerrymander away the votes of billionaires right, everyone would look at you like you were mad. Whereas the Romans would be like, yeah, that's probably right. And indeed, the the most important Roman voting body, the Comitia Centuriata, uh, voted kind of like the Electoral College. It voted in units and the units are what counted. The units were organized by wealth and there were 18 units at the very top reserved for the equites, the very, very rich. Um, so, I mean, the Romans literally gerrymandered their political system uh, to make sure that, you know, the billionaire vote didn't go unheard. All right. So I, I, I know you're running along and you've been really generous because we got a late start. But um, just on this point, because it's it, it plays into contemporary politics a little bit. It's worth knowing that oligarchy does not mean rule by rich people. It means rule by the few. Few. Right. And so it just so happens that the, the few are always rich. Right. But sometimes the causality isn't. Yes. They're not members of the few because they're rich. They're rich because they're members of the few. Mm -hmm. Right. If you have a special access, special privileges, it's really easy to get rich. This is why a lot of senators in the United States go in fairly middle class or close to it and end up kind of rich and they haven't broken any laws. It's just, they have access to things and, and all that kind of stuff. All right. So I just, the, the last question, cause I'll kick myself. I mean, I, I could do this all day and I know there are a lot of listeners who would like me to keep doing this, but we should get I can always come back. I know. I know. Okay. But last, last question about this. So I've been reading a lot about Russian history lately for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. And one of the points that comes up is that there's a real sociological evolutionary difference between land empires and maritime empires. Um, and maritime empires tend to be extractive, right? Um, they don't try to change all of their colonies, the United States notwithstanding, um, to become like them. While land empires, and I'm thinking mostly about Russia right now, but also China, uh, they're constantly, it's sort of like what you're saying about how the Russians are always, the, the Romans were always declaring war defensively. If you have this notion that you are threatened at your border, so what you need to do is you need to take the next territory create a buffer state 
to protect your ter- to to pick, to, pick, to protect the homeland what ends up happening is you then make that captured territory part of your homeland so then you never have this moment where your borders are safe because you're always pressing up against people who don't want to be part of your empire who have a good reason to believe that they're next right and but the way you talk about the rise of the roman empire which i think is right is that it's they're kind of half maritime half land empire in the sense that they don't like the the russians literally would take russians and put them in these territories to russify them mm-hmm. right and you get less of that with the romans you get sort of yeah you can be citizens after a while pay your dues and you get to be one of us but they're not like shipping whole populations up and deporting whole populations out to romanize these places so like in those two models like where do you put rome versus the roman empire versus sort of like the british empire or the russian empire i think seeing rome as something of a hybrid is is probably a good way to think about it it's true that the romans are, are the romans don't do anything for the purpose of of romanizing people um they do occasionally do mass deportations um most famously of course in the roman province of judea um the romans never quite get a sort of uh a stable situation in part because um, the Romans do not understand Judaism and don't care to learn. And so give offense just continuously. And my people are still pretty pissed about that. I just want to be clear about that. <laughs> Understandably so. And so the Romans are willing to, willing to do that. Um, but um, the, the, Roman, the Romans are willing to do that. Um, of course, the, the Roman empire is built around the Mediterranean. And so it has that sea-based connectiveness to it. The Romans, of course, have land frontiers everywhere. What's really striking about uh, the Roman Empire is that Augustus, at the end of his reign, basically calls to stop. Right, The Roman Empire had been expanding and expanding, and we're told. Augustus is explicit in his directions to Tiberius. He's like, this this is it. Um, Everywhere we would expand is further away from the Mediterranean. Um, So we shouldn't. We shouldn't overstretch. Um, and we should hold on on these borders and defend them. And we do see this gets into a whole Roman strategy argument, which is its own can of worms. So we do see evidence of like a Roman strategic posture changing from a more offensive posture to a more defensive posture. Um, and the Romans look to hold hold what they do. I should note the Romans do occasionally plant colonies of Romans, usually as a way of rewarding soldiers for for service, uh, especially in the late Republic and and the very first decades of the Empire. And so you do get you do get a movement of Roman citizens out of Italy and pockets created that way. Though though yeah, they're not doing wholesale population replacement. Um, there aren't enough Italians. Um, there never are. No. Um, and, uh, um, and so it it is different this way. I think that, I don't know that it's a distinction between maritime empires and land empires as being extractive versus settlement based empires, but that that is the difference. Is it, are your, is your empire extractive or, um, is it, is it settlement based? And then I suppose, you know, projecting, uh, forward, uh, as you get into the early modern, you have empires that are are resource extraction empires rather than your ancient and medieval empires when we talk about them as being extractive the thing they're extracting is food um it's all agricultural production because that's most of the economy um the main roman tax is a land tax 
um, though it's it, how heavy it is varies province to province um, because the Romans do everything ad hoc. Nothing is planned. And, and so you have, you have that kind of, of empire and then you have these sorts of, of settlement-based empires where we're going to push out and the, the goal is to get new land for our people. Um, those are frankly less common in the ancient world because the difficulties of communication and transportation make it hard to do that. And that's kind of a weird way of the story of nationalism, right? Is that we stop calling it empires. We call it the historic nation state. And so the Germans, the French, they conquer the land that they think has always been theirs. And they call everybody, the minority populations, French people. And right. that, they solve the problem that way. Yeah. And it's, it's also worth noting because um, I think this gets misunderstood by people is that they often imagine the movements of people here are much larger than they are. And so you get, you know, folks that are a little bit too obsessed about, you know, uh, the genetic lineages of people, um, you know, imagine that people are being wholly replaced. And usually what you're actually seeing is a small strata of elites being planted over a, a population below them that hasn't fundamentally changed. Um, usually, and there are exceptions, but usually. And so, um, you know, and, and so in, in a lot of these cases, right, the people that are becoming French, right, they're not being replaced by Frenchmen. They are becoming French. And that sort of then gets swept under the rug as the sort of national self-perception moves forward. Um, and you see the, you know, this kind of, um, this kind of arrangement very clearly. I mean, with Russia and particularly like Russia's interaction with Ukraine, um, that, Russia has been trying to Russify Ukraine for a long time. A long time, yeah. Long, long time, uh, often quite violently. And in, in some ways, Putin's war is the latest chapter of what is a very long-running effort um, to, to forcibly incorporate Ukraine into the Russian nation-state. Um, though, in, in this case, I think Putin appears to have created the Ukrainian nation in a way that it did not exist before. Sort of like Napoleon kind of created the Germans. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. And it, that's not to say that there wasn't Ukrainian language and literature and all of this stuff, that there weren't Ukrainians before. But I mean, the the nation as an entity, the sort of the people moving together, uh, you know, perhaps a Ukrainian nationalist would say that, that, that Putin revealed the Ukrainian nation that it existed. Whereas me, you know, I'm going to say that he created, but like, which I mean, certainly looks like it will go down in history as one of the, the greatest strategic own goals of our time. Um, w wow. All right. So Brett, Deborah, I, I really have abused my privileges here. I kept <laughs> you on here because we, we, we didn't start to like a half hour late and I'm, you've been great and very generous. I promise if you'll come back, I would love to have you back. I have many more questions. I will definitely come back. We haven't even mocked all the people who think that they would all be Roman generals today. Oh God. Yes. They could go back in time. There's all sorts of that stuff, which we need to do. And, you know, I haven't even talked about Dungeons and Dragons or any of that kind of stuff. So, uh, thank you again. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me on. It was great. Okay. So, uh, Dr. Devereaux, which has a really great sort of James Bondian or maybe like Island of Dr. Devereaux kind of sound to it. Um, has left the studio. As you can tell, I like this stuff. I want to do more of this stuff. Um, and I think he's great and he's interesting and he's, he's willing to indulge me on some of this stuff, which I, I always appreciate. And, uh, and again, I, I apologize if I started off a little weird at the beginning of this thing, but Adam, who's usually the guy who's trying to discipline me for my slapdash methods and ways, 
um, he'd sent me the link to start up this podcast and then he vanished. And um, I was starting to worry that he was like lying in a pool of blood somewhere or um, on a three state killing spree, making other people lie in pools of blood. Anyway, everything's fine. Um, I was just kind of frazzled at the beginning and we got started late. And then I abused my privileges with Dr. Devereaux. But um, I'll have further thoughts about this on the solo, probably something like that. But uh, thanks for listening and I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.